Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students seeking the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. Today in the office I have Ryan Reyna, PhD, founder and executive director of the Joshua Center, a counseling agency, a trainer in emotionally focused therapy, and co-host of the Leading Edge podcast for EFT, as well as the Leading Edge podcast for leadership. I'm so excited to have him in the office. Um, Ryan, is there anything else you would like to add? Uh, yeah, man, that's pretty good. I mean, I um, was on faculty for counseling or marriage and family therapy uh, for 10 years at uh, three different universities uh, in different roles. And then we started our own private practice for 10 years. So it's been a learning experience for sure. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of learning comes from failure. So uh, that's been a good teacher for me. Uh, my faith is a big piece of it too uh, in terms of why we do this. Um, but that's how to introduce myself. What else you want to know? <laughs> what what three universities have you taught at? Yeah, so I taught maybe seven or courses or so at the University of Louisiana Monroe as a grad assistant down there, and then I taught for Harding. Taught two courses at Har for Harding, man, a long time ago. I mean, knowing that was now, um, and then I taught for John Brown University, uh, part and full time for about seven years. Wow. So yeah, you've done the the, the full spread. Yeah. Student to professor yeah so sure. and you're also doing trainings now right you're with uh, EFT and and EFT trainer I am yeah yeah sure am how is that different than the than the teaching in the classroom you know and there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap uh, I certainly wish I'd known then what I know now I'd be a lot better as a faculty um, I think there's a lot of pressure on faculty members to not be specific you know and, and to te you know to not follow one model which makes sense because you, your students need a breadth of understanding if for no other reason to pass national licensure exams, but also to have a breadth to understand the whole field. But it's also tragic because most people don't enter this profession to have a breadth of knowledge or to just understand research methods and multiculturalism and those things, although they are important. Most people enter this profession to be able to go into hard situations and create change and healing. And uh, that's, that's the part that kind of drives me crazy. That doesn't get near enough airtime. So in my EFT work, I can just focus on that, really how to become an agent of change and really teaching the map that comes with EFT, which is incredibly refined. Um, I can talk more about that if you want or not. But uh, that's the main thing for me is it allows me to really, really just lean into what I think is the point of, of this for most people which is to, to really, really bring around, is to really, really enter dark places to bring about change and healing. Yeah. You know, that's so important. And um, we talked about this a little bit with my own story and to some of the reading and research that I've done on how to become an expert. And I guess let's start from the basic, right? Because let's just say that you're going to design your own grad program. And you've had some experience and um, you've also had experience in different facets so like where would you start like what would be like the first thing that you know i don't know elon musk wants to also sponsor not just space but also like mental health right yeah and so he says okay i'm gonna go to you ryan and you can do whatever you want man that's a good question i know you're gonna ask that <laughs> that's good i mean i think um i think i would not teach any theory till the second or third semester I would really want a combination of like foundational truths of like ethics, 
and like introduction to being a professional and then building into therapeutic alliance and really, really understand the importance, uh, you know, matching attunement stuff, which we cover really, really quickly in EFT. It'd be nice if people had a year of that. And then coming alongside self stuff. So your own attachment history areas, you know, really, really doing your trauma assessments extensively. People say sending um, tra uh, counseling students need to go to counseling, which I think is good, but I think that's even kicking the can down the road a little bit because one hour a week is often not exhaustive in terms of the growth I want to see. So I'd love to see that be done for a semester or two and then start seeing clients actually and then teach the models as you work or the second half of the of the process um, but I mean for me it's like I would really want to empower my faculty to get practical and get specific and particularly spend I would want to spend 35 percent of the program on how you're going to handle defenses resistance or blocks as we call them because that's really what predicts this you know you got to have a map you got to be able to show up for people with all your heart and then the next piece is what are you going to do when they block you yeah that, that to me that's what really makes a great therapist as well as i want to add one piece when i talk about showing up with your heart you, you got to be clear on why you're doing this if, if you're not doing this for the right reasons you're not going to do your best work and you won't last i mean the the burnout rate of therapists is what seven eight years so that's what i think man at the top of my head i could probably do more of that yeah. some other time no, that makes sense. You know, that's how Top Gun was started, right? You had these military fighter pilots who had to get better because they were in wartime. That's right. And they said, okay, in the past, we've put people in, in, in schools and it hasn't worked. So let's just run dogfights all day, watch tape all night. And after we review the tape, go and practice something new. I love like, it. That's what they do instead of, you know, studying aerodynamics or studying yeah. flight yeah. mechanics. Like, yeah. They just run it and run it and run it and run it and that's what I want to see. <laughs> that's, that's, I love what you're saying. That's what we're missing right now. And I think it's a crisis, actually, because mental health needs have never been bigger, especially the hardest kind of therapy, couples, trauma, addiction, those kind of things. It's never been more of a need. And yet our counseling programs are there in some ways shrinking in terms of the amount of touch, the amount of contact faculty have with students for financial reasons or whatever. Everything's becoming more and more part time. And to me, it's 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 a problem. So I love what, that's exactly what I think we should be doing. Just yeah. what you just said. Yeah. And you were also talking about some of the essentials, like knowing why you're in this. Mm -hmm. What do you feel like are some of the essentials? Yeah, I mean, I, we wrote this pyramid. I think I shared it with you. You were there that day, of of what predicts a therapist's ability to really stay engaged, to do their best work, and specifically what knocks them off course. You know, and I'm just looking at it right now. You know, the fourth one is, do you really love people? You know, if you really don't love people, if your heart doesn't break when theirs is breaking, if if it doesn't matter to you too much, that's going to come across. You won't do your best work, and you're gonna you're gonna burn out. And so, so that's the question. I think it, I think it can be different answers for different people. I don't think it necessarily has to be some kind of faith thing. I think it's good for people if that creates more love for you then that's a great source I think it can sometimes be your own story or maybe you had some kind of redemptive experience when you were in your darkest moment and you want to pay that back but 
if you if there's not some kind of tie, some kind of access to a fountain of energy that creates love, then none of the rest of this really makes sense. And I've seen that done before. I've seen people who are doing these things and have good technique, but it's not really coming from love. And I've also seen people who started that way and just lost it somewhere. And it's easy to do. You can become cynical. You can become burnt out and, and get mismatched with sort of that fountain or access place of love that's not coming through you anymore. So I think you have to know why you're doing this. I really encourage grad students to write it out extensively in detail exactly why you're doing this because there'll be days when you need to come back and read that. And if you don't have love, it's not, if it's not coming from a place of love, it's not going to work. It won't last. So that's what I think. Yeah. You know, I have friends who, um, who often say, man, I could never do what, what you do. Yeah. Because I, I, I just get so burnt out listening to, to people's stories. Yeah. And these are people who I know also care deeply. Mm-hmm. So how would you mitigate on the other side of that, right? Students coming into a program, hearing maybe things they haven't ever heard before. And it just crushes them. And because they are sort of um, empathic, attuned into other people, how would you handle that on, on, on the other side? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, too. I think it's normal. I think um, some of this is, is acquisition, too. I don't think it's natural to come in and have, like, a regular life and then step in these closed-door rooms for hours at a time and hear this unbelievable tragedy of abuse and these horrible things in people's darkest places and it not affect you. So I think it's really normal to for that to be a couple years before you develop the muscles to, to be able to go in and hear six sexual abuse cases and then one person's suicidal and you dismiss them and then go, go in the next room and make, th- make a joke with your colleague. Right? It's, a, it's a muscle to be able to do that, to be able to be fully present when you're there and then fully present somewhere else when you're somewhere else. So I don't think grad students should expect themselves to be able to do that. So a little bit of self-compassion, but also know you got to be working towards that. Um, and I don't know if, if it's like, well, some people were just more born to do it and others. I'm like, maybe, I don't know. I've not noticed that. I think people can learn to do it if they want to, but it goes back to why you're doing it. Yeah. And, and I think then once you're experienced, it's about figuring out the rhythm of how, how much you can engage what works for you. You know, for me, once I get started, I'd better just see three, four, five, six, seven, eight in a row. Some people are like, if I see more than two in a row, I'm not any good. I've got to have a half an hour off. And I think it's a great thing to be paying attention to. Um, so I think it's, it's, I don't know if I mentioned your question when you say the word mitigation. You want to explain that more? No, I think that's a great answer. Right? Okay. Part of what you're saying is, you need to be able to know where you are as a person and what you can handle. Part of that's also just letting yourself um, sort of ease into it. Mm-hmm. You know, therapy is, I think you're right. It's, it's a very odd thing. Yeah. I started off doing in-home therapy, which is bizarre. Yeah. To have a, I don't know, 23 year old come into your house and try to help you be a better parent. <laughs> you know what I mean? When I there are any number of other things going on. Yeah. That's just an odd sort of, place to even work you know yeah. um and so yeah i think we all have to just i don't think this is i think the the strange thing though is grad students can come in all ages and so it's not how old you are in my experience it's where you are in your own process mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a 50 year old coming into a house 
has to give herself just as much leeway as a 23 year old you know male yep. going into a house for the for the first time yeah i mean sometimes an older person can start to trust in the wrong thing right they can start to trust that because they have life experience that they can give content and it'll work and then they find out the hard way it's not true you know this is not about giving advice you know you can, i'm not saying you can't share a little piece of wisdom every once in a while but as a rule you've got to learn to pay attention to process and a 20 a 20 year old can go work with a 60 year old if the 23 year old is clear on the map of how they do things and can look at process and so i agree completely i think you know i think both of those can bring different strengths and weaknesses to the table as they're learning the process of therapy but trusting the process work is hard to do it's so american maybe or western or maybe it's just human nature to to see someone fall in a hole and to want to reach over and give them the advice that we think worked for us but that's also very dangerous because that person's going back in the next hundred holes you've got to be with them as a human and then you've got to find a way to dance with their process to help them find it for themselves and um that's hard to trust in is that what you would say was one of the one of the the big blocks earlier you're talking about how we can kind of get derailed by some of the really big blocks that we face yeah yeah i mean it's if you want to get specific in the clinical work um process work is not popular that's it's not what anyone expects i know that one of my main referral people is you know he's always like well when you're counseling them to give them this or this and i'm like I don't, we don't do that did you think that's what i do you know and so it's, it's a misconception of what we do so clients want solutions they want to roll out I mean, what really happens is clients roll out their problem in the form of themes and philosophy and then what they expect is you to give them solutions so it's like we're the wizard of oz so if you're going to break that and, and stay at the process level, you're going to get used to resistance from clients, even frustration. But it's not the same as, well, just be a good listener. That's, that's bad therapy. That's a good, a good bartender, perhaps. So we're somewhere in between solution provision and just being a listener. It's like we're very engaged, but we're engaged at the process level. Trying to, for me, it's trying to create new experience of self and other, you know, um, corrective experience right in my office that's my what my model my map informs me to go for so yeah i do think that's one of the blocks we talk in my model we talk a lot about the solution the spt the solution provision trap you know which is like you you got it you know you you hear the story and they're like okay here's some advice but people that are clinically stuck can't install advice good, good advice is not hard to come by i mean you can google everything in the world right now so you know we're not advice dispensers um, so I think that is definitely one of the blocks that comes forward I think if you know how to go to deeper work then you're going to get into different blocks which are more advanced which takes a higher level of, of training but that's certainly one of them early on yeah for sure yeah um, when you talk about process mm -hmm. I think some people might not be clear on what you mean by that yeah you know process is just looking at for instance if someone comes to me if a couple I do a lot of couples work and says you know we're having sexual dysfunction and they out they lay out these details and what they're giving me is narratives well I'm high drive he's low drive you know and what they're giving me they're not telling me what's really going on they're telling me the narrative that they've constructed about what's going on 
So my first question, I mean, obviously you're going to do assessment, but I've got to get an answer to the question. When you two try to discuss sexuality, how does your conversation go? And that's what I'm looking for is what is their process that they use to try to address this that doesn't work. And so for, you know, and that would be some form of a pursuit withdrawal cycle in that situation. But yeah, so just staying with the approach, the paradigm that they're using, which encompasses cognitive, behavioral, and emotional um, towards the problem, as opposed to, okay, here's some techniques that you could use, or, oh, you just need to accept that your partner's high or low, or let me mediate this dispute. That'd be a content process. I'm staying with what is their pattern that they get into as they try to approach this situation. And so trusting the process is a much higher level of skill. It takes more of a refined therapist to be able to do that, but it's no question more effective and much less likely to create recidivism and relapse and, and things like that. So you can't solve second order stuckness with first order interventions yep. or skills. It's like that Einstein quote, you can't solve a problem at the same level of thinking that created it. That's right. He also says the only knowledge in the world is experience. <laughs> and that's right. <laughs> you can't give people information only and expect change to last. It is, it's life, you know, therapy is like riding a bike. You got to get out there with them and you got to catch them a few times. And sometimes they hit the ground and you got to pick them back up and reassure them. But therapy, in my view, therapy needs to be like riding a bike. We, we do way too much talking about things and like, let's do it now. You know, so if someone says they're anxious and we get caught trying to solve their anxiety while the anxiety is in the parking lot, we got to get the anxiety in our office, get it alive in the body right in front of them and engage there for a corrective experience. So that's something I like to push for. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fundamentally different um, way of working, mm -hmm. you know, and I have a, there's a few people who I like. Um, I went to a conference, I don't know, three years ago, I want to say, out in California, the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference. And one of the things that was evident to me was all these people who are uh, sort of leaders in different areas of, the, of therapy. The ones who it seemed evident to me were always, who were good at what they did, they were always very experiential. You know, even the CBT people, I, I had personally written off CBT for a long time. And then I saw, I don't know, Aaron Beck's daughter, I forget what her name was, do a session. And she was doing role plays for half the live session. And I'm like, wow. Like, to me, that seems to be a fundamental um, it's a little part. More, a little more than cognition, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> it, it was totally different than when I thought of, you know, yeah, almost like using a board to just go through thoughts, like uh -huh. identify distortions. No, uh -huh. she, was, she was running it constantly. Nice. So... Nice. What about on the other side? What do you feel like? Um, so, you know, unfortunately, Elon Musk hasn't called you yet. Nope. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. We're, we're still waiting. Yeah. Um, and so most of us have to go through some sort of grad program. Yeah. And then we have to get out. And one of the things that I've seen, which I think is speaks to what you talked about, is a lot of people get out. They get some job. They feel like they don't know what they're doing. Right. And they go and get some sort of certification, whether it's EMDR, yeah. whether it's brain spotting, whether yeah. it's TBRI, whether it's EFT, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and then they kind of run through that loop until they find something that really resonates with them. Yeah. Um, but the other side of that is, you know, we know from the research that a lot of 
therapists actually don't improve over time. Right. So for someone who's post-grad school, trying to get better, trying to help people, their heart yeah. is in the right place. Like, what would you say is something that they can do to, like, improve? Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of war right now between those of us, and I put myself in this camp, who are doing post-grad trainings, post-grad certifications. There's a little bit of war between faculty members and, and these groups um, in some ways, I guess. I don't really know why, to be honest with you. I don't even see it as competition, but um, I think they're good. I wish it had been around when I came out. When I finished grad school, it's like, okay, go find a supervisor who shows up and kind of has coffee, kind of tells you what he or she thinks about one of your cases, and it's like, wow. that there is. I'll tell you this. Let me tell you the most expensive thing in the world is not being clear at your map as a therapist. Because if you're not clear on exactly what and why you're doing it, then your your range is going to be really, really limited. You'll only help people who just really like you. I mean, Therapeutic Alliance is a powerful thing, but you won't be able to help stuck people. So my, my real answer is a process answer. Do whatever you got to do to get extremely clear on your map. This is my bias coming through. I respect and appreciate other people who are kind of like, yeah, I do five or six different things. But inside, I'm like, eh, you probably don't. You probably don't. It takes, you know, four to seven years to learn one model. So people that think they're going to do five, like you're doing pieces of all five. And if you talk to the people who made those models and saw what you were doing, they would not be happy with you. So I, I'm a big fan of, you know, try to really be considerate about what you think you might like and go get all of it. I will say this, I've seen, I learned this from a grad student when I was a professor in year number two, so it's pretty early on. He, he was in my theories class. He picked a strategic model, so Jay Haley, right? So I'm like, he's like, what do you think? I'm like, go get it. Like, no, really, go get it. So for a year, he read like six books on it and flew to DC. I think he trained with Chloe Madonis or somebody. He's like all about every one of his sessions in practical. He was getting all kinds of pushback from his professors, which is ridiculous and almost unethical, by the way, for a professor not to honor what you're doing and try to work with your model. And, you know, after two or three, he changed his mind. He, he went, I think he went narrative. And uh, you know what? He was really good in narrative because he, he understood one all the way. And that point, the distinctions with his new model became more clear. So I think go deep, get really, really clear on a map, knowing you can always tweak this later. You know, you might can be a good integrationist if you have one model really, really deep. Um, but I think I think the postgrad trainings are really good. You like them? Um, I do. Yeah. I, well, when I say I like them, when I look down my hall and I see someone who gets really, really into one of these, they get excited. Their work is better. They're not as burnt out. They're always like, ooh, there's this cool training coming up in Tampa, and I'm going to save up my money and go to brain spotting or EFT or whatever it is. They're, they're just more refreshed. I see people who just kind of mow along and do the same old thing for eight years, and they're all thinking about, oh, I think I've had enough of this. So I think that's one piece is it just re-energizes you. But secondly, to get really, really clear on your map, is important. I, I won't win all my cases, but I can tell you exactly why I lose them without just blaming my clients. It's easy to be like, oh, well, they have issues. Like, I know they have issues. That's why they're clients. 
So um, I think do whatever you gotta do to, clear, to get clear on your map, and then I think um, it energizes you and uh, get specific about why you why you're doing what you're doing. Get yeah. mentorship. Problem is mentorship's hard to find. It's really yeah. really hard to find. So especially after the supervision phase, mm -hmm. it's so hard, and then sometimes it can be expensive. Yeah, you know for sure. So it's also expensive to not be effective. That's that's more expensive than the training, though. <laughs> if you're not effective, that'll cost you a lot of money. Uh, so I think it's kind of holding this balance of how much am I going to invest in this? You know, I had a client, not a client, I had a potential trainee contact me on Facebook about a training that I was doing. And I spent a lot of time with this person to say, because he's like, I want to see couples. I hear, you know, what you're doing is good. I'm like, all right, come on. And then he emails back and he goes, oh, this is expensive. And he's like, ah, I think I'll just uh, use the tools I have. And he was surprised because I just hit, I just replied back with, yep, sounds good. And he's like, well, why'd you say that? I'm like, ah, if you don't want it, then don't do it. You know, I'm not going to chase you down. But I mean, how should his clients feel if he won't invest to, to go get the best he can be? So I don't know. That's Maybe that's the Enneagram 8 in me. He wants to push, right, and, and get better. Yeah. I mean, that's probably part of it. I think for me, one of the big things is understanding, not that I haven't mastered at all, but even the little that I've done about the learning process, um, that's how the process works. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, and we see it most clearly, I think, in sports, which you know better, th better than I do. Mm -hmm. But, like, no one gets good, you know. Like, <laughs> so Kobe Bryant, right? There's stories about how he'd shoot what, like a thousand free throws every yep. day just yep. to, just to just to know that he can do it. Yeah, you know. And um, I have a buddy who played semi pro ball, and he was mm -hmm. he talks about how much they 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 practice, mm -hmm. and they practice like maybe four hours a day, two hours in the morning, two mm -hmm. hours in the in the evening, mm -hmm. and so the actual amount of time that they're putting in. Mm -hmm in a given day is not that much. So mm -hmm. for Kobe to go out, because for me, I thought like, mm -hmm. they're practicing eight hours a day in the mm -hmm. weight room. Yeah, mm -hmm. No, they're letting the body recover. But mm -hmm. if you're going to be Kobe, if you're going to be Michael, if you're going to be LeBron, you have to put in the extra time. Yep. But the same thing is true for anybody who gets good at anything, mm -hmm. right? The people who get to be in college at, on, the, on the college level, mm -hmm. they're putting in more time than the people who are putting in who only played at the high school level. Right. You know? Right. And so I think, you know, I think for lots of us, there's a balance that has to be hit as well. Yeah. We have yeah. families, we have kids, we have life going on. But if you're not doing those things and thinking about the process, um, then you're basically playing pickup. Yep, that's right. And, and this is not a trial run is what's scary about that. This is people's lives we're talking about, you know, I've been working with couples for 21, almost 21 years, and they don't give you many misses. You know, if you don't have some kind of change going on by about session 10, you're probably not going to have them. You know, and they may, you may end a family. It wouldn't be your fault. But I think our clients are worth giving it our very best. Yeah. You know, and I can get specific. I just have a note here. You know, it's like watching your videos is really key. It's the most unpopular thing on the planet. No one likes the sound of their own voice. Uh, I don't like mine either, but the reality is you don't know what you're doing until you watch your videos. And people talk, when they say, what model do you practice? I'm always like, what do you mean by that? Like you've seen yourself doing that? 
So what, get in a situation into some deep pain and get a client who's super resistant and let's see how you dance. That's your model. Do you go cognitive in that moment? Do you become a teacher? And so you really won't know what you're doing until you're watching video. Something I really appreciate about you. And part of what you've helped the culture uh, here is the video um, observation and, and how we do research with that. And so that can't be said enough. I think any practicing clinician should be watching themselves minimum once a month, even if it's just a 20-minute window. And that is not happening. I mean, I, most experienced people haven't watched yourself in 10 years. If at all. If at all. Grad school. You know, if at all then. If, yeah. if, if at all then. And that's, that's a travesty. That cannot happen. You would yeah. never have someone at Top Gun not watch. I was a college athlete. I can't fathom not watching. They would video us, us in the batting cages, and you would look and you would slow it down in slow motion. Even in Little League right now, they're doing that because they care. So we got to care enough to, to do the uncomfortable piece. And clients will let you do it, contrary to people's paranoia. They're mostly more fine with it for training purposes. Yeah. I mean, I have it in my informed consent, and I think I've had, I'm going to say 10, just to be super um, overly, I don't know, gregarious. Yeah. Realistically, I probably have, have had five people, and I've seen about 170 clients. I've had five people who have said no. Mm -hmm. Right. So you do get no's. Right. When you're videoing, but most of the time, uh -huh. 90 plus percent of the time, people say yes. Yeah. And you, I mean, I know I, I catch things. I had a couple, oh my gosh, that just blew up. Mm -hmm. I watched the tape. I still, still didn't know what I did. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I didn't know what, what blew up. Mm -hmm. um, but the next time we were in session, something felt off. And then, and then I caught it. And if I hadn't had the tape, I wouldn't have known. Mm -hmm. It would have been another just massive sort of blow-up. Mm -hmm. So even stuff like that, you have to be watching. I think you have to be watching your, your, your tape. You do. And, and um, yeah, you can't, you can't divorce this profession from research. And by research, I don't mean like some surveys or, or the math part. What I mean is the study of the process. And um, you've got to watch video. You got to watch video to know what you're doing and to improve. It's an absolute, yep. Yeah. Um. So, what's your own process? I know that you're doing the trainer circuit and you have your hands in lots of different things. So, are you still sort of engaged in that? Are you doing that in a different way now? What's your What's your process like? Yeah, I'm a trainer with EFT. This is my maybe my fourth year doing that, um, and so. I teach, I travel and teach um, 10, 14 times a year. About eight or nine of those, I do live consults. And so that's me coming in with someone else's clients and doing a demonstration in front of the group. And so I spend a lot of time with those videos watching myself. I like a lot of what I'm doing, and there's pieces of it I don't like what I'm doing. And I got to get better, you know. And there's two or three pieces I'm actively working on right now. Pacing has never been easy for me. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a high volume thought guy, but not necessarily rhythmic, you know, and so that's something I'm working on right now. It's an uh, uh, edge for me. Um, uh, I love, I'm not a great reader in terms of reading a book and it makes me better. I wish I was. My wife can do that. She, she'll read, you know, whoever's book and get better the next week. My brain just doesn't process it that way. I've got to go be with people. So I'm pretty selective about continuing to be mentored. 
and who I'll go travel and train with. I'll either spend my money or work for cheap to go spend some time with people who are better than me. And, uh, and they push me and challenge me. And then I'm, this world is new for me with the podcasting world. I've, I, I was just telling someone, I don't know who it was, uh, just a minute ago that three months ago I'd never done one, and now this is like my 14th one mm. I've done, and some on leadership and some on, on therapy, and uh, that's, that's been good for me. Um, and then I see, you know, 14 to 16 clients a week, about half and half, individuals and couples. And um, that's how I keep it moving, kind of circling in that way. And then I do a lot of supervision as well, mostly online from around the country. I don't do as much local anymore. So looking at their cases and how I can be helpful with them, that helps me too. I think that's probably an under-discussed under part of this process. I think a lot of therapists, uh, a lot of beginning therapists, it doesn't click until they're helping other people come along. So we see that in our, in our neck of the woods with EFT. We have our trainings and we always have a facilitator team. And a lot of times that's when a new, a relatively new trainee gets it is when they come back to facilitate for the first time. I think it provides distinctions. I think it clarifies it for them. So I think that's a great thing to do. I, I was actually, it's funny that you asked that question, if I could do it over again. I actually drew a model in my seventh year as faculty where, you know, second or third year students would individually mentor first year students and help them come along through the process and sort of explain and that sort of thing. I think it would be mutually beneficial. Yeah. I think that could be a good thing. Yeah, I think there's something that is fundamentally different about teaching something, mm -hmm. you know, um, that helps you learn it on a whole new level. Yeah. It takes it out of the first order knowledge. Yeah. And moves it into yeah. dynamic. Yeah. Absolutely. And the funny thing, this sounds terrible, but my facilitators would be like, I wasn't getting this until I saw this person who's frankly worse than me doing this. And now it's really, really clear why I should never do that. And so Monday, I stopped doing that forever. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's just something to be said for looking at a process at multiple levels of it. That helps too. Yeah, I know. I'm definitely biased. I read, um, there's a guy named George Lakoff, who's a cognitive linguist. One of his big points is language is always based off of experience. So the closer we get to that, the more understanding we, we have. Mm -hmm. um, that's right. And I think you see that. I think that's why tribes and groups work, work really well together, because they have a collection, yeah. not of language, but of experience. Mm -hmm. And then they can talk about it through that language. That's right. And that's what jargon is, right? right. Jargon is the language that we have together because we have a shared experience. Mm -hmm. But what we know is that jargon makes people on the outside completely confused mm -hmm. at best. Mm -hmm. At worst, they have a false understanding of it. Mm -hmm. They think they know, but then they go to do and they can't. It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So gotcha. I love what you're saying. That's good. I mean, it's like my last client this week, my 10 o'clock on, uh, I don't know, Monday or Tuesday, whatever that was. You know, at about 35 minutes in, we're talking about bonding and what makes a relationship secure. And they had tons of insight and they were saying really good stuff. And it, but it, but I just noticed, man, this is philosophical. And, and, and the, the wife in this case in particular, she was just really confident. She's like, I absolutely know I can do this. And I'm like, well, let's do it then. And so, and they weren't ready for that part. We're doing it right now. And so once we got in there, she couldn't in fact do it, right? Her, her defenses took over. And, and then so we worked with that, and then eventually towards the end she did. And I'm like, man, if I had sent them home, staying with that cognitive approach, I would have felt good about the session. But that's just like talking about riding a bike. 
you know, you can't ride a bike until you feel what it's like for the pre for the pedals to propel you forward, and you find that balance. Like that that sensation is what our clients are looking for, and and we only give them that by getting our hands dirty into those places with them and helping them ride the bike the right way in a corrective way. Of course, you can't get corrective until you get into the destruct destructed part. So, but I think that can't be emphasized enough. And how can grad programs come along, people come along? side their students and help them do that is is the million dollar question all right so i want to be respectful of your time all right um, we're winding down last question what all do right. you do what do you think is on the 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 forefront of the field what's on the what's on the edge man that's a big one too i'll be really curious what technology does you know i'm an attachment theorist so uh, technology is a big part of the reason that EFT and attachment models are so popular because technology has proven it with MRI studies, with blood glucose studies, that humans have attachment brains. So that's one thing. I think that might continue. I also think, you know, technology like TMS, biofeedback might be interesting. I, I, I hope that's good. Um, you know, what I don't love about those treatments is they they're not necessarily redemptive or reparative in terms of helping people where they actually got hurt they're more like let me help your brain get more efficient which i think is also good but i think there's going to be more interplay with that um then i think there's going to be some problems there already is grad programs are i have figured out you know we, i don't know i want to step on toes here you're asking my opinion i'm just yeah. going to tell you Grad programs can figure out, okay, we can make, you know, $900,000 in the traditional way, which that, that sounds like a lot of money, but by the time you pay expenses, it's not. Or we can make $4 million if we make it part-time and just do night classes and we can hire a bunch of adjuncts only, you know, and, and, and we can make a lot more money. And, and, and students are happier sometimes with that too, but I'm like, but hang on, this is incredibly personal, incredibly deep, incredibly intense work that we're doing. This is non-trivial, man. And so that's, that's scary for me. I think that's the future risk. I also think it's good, things are gonna go more and more and more online, which I think is neat, but it can divide us further. So I think there's gonna be a convergence of technology helping and hurting us. But I don't, I don't think the fundamentals will ever really change. Mammals have attachment brains. And, uh, you know, I had my 11 o'clock today who's a great person, really avoidant, as, as really all, all clients are. I mean, avoidance is one of the top three things you'll see across the board your whole career. Just avoid, 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 avoid pain. The brain registers that as a threat cue in and of itself. I'm going to get started on that. But she just talks about one thing that helps her with anxiety is a weighted blanket. I'm like, oh, great, man. Glad, glad you got one. But what is that weighted blanket creating a sensation of? Human connection. It's simulating that to the body. right? So that's never going to change in the future. How, how do we create more authentic, secure connection between, our, between people? That's never going to change. So I think it's just going to be a, a question of how we do it. Yeah, you know, the thing that I think is fascinating about this field is we are on the edge of so many new breakthroughs. I think the next 20, 30 years, I think we'll see so many things will be really, really uh, clearly defined. I think in some ways, 
you think we're much further than we actually are. I think, I think this field is still in its infancy. Mm-hmm. And technology will eliminate a, a lot of that. And I think that you're probably right. We're probably going to see a greater and greater divide. Um, but the thing that's inspiring is I think people in this field want to be better therapists. Mm-hmm. I got an email yesterday from somebody I met at, at one of your trainings. And they were like, hey, I want to come down. If we can get coffee and talk about the model, like I'm trying to get better. When, when can we meet? You know, and it's like, I hear those stories often. People yeah. want to get better at yeah. this. Yeah, man. And I think, you know, as therapists, clinicians, and researchers, we have to be seriously thinking about our own process in, in teaching and are we actually meeting those goals or are we yeah. kind of doing to our students what a lot of therapists end up doing to their clients? Yeah, that's yeah. well said. So. I was at a conference in Nashville a few years ago and I was with Sue Johnson and there was like a hundred people in line to get her to sign her book. You know, and myself, Kenny Sanderford and I were standing there and and uh, we were like, man, look at these people. <laughs> like, poor Sue, she's going to get a hand cramp. And and I'm like, yeah, she's a star. And, and Kenny kind of ex- was existential and he's like, no, these people are all stars, right? If you think about what kind of people are drawn to do this it's a spe- it's special people that matter that are doing this for for the right reasons and that that that's a pretty cool thing so i think that's something that we have going for us as well for sure yeah yeah well thank you ryan you bet man all right talk to you later good to be with you